0: Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Health providers and advocates are sounding the alarm about the growing number of Americans who are struggling with anxiety and depression, substance abuse, and suicide. Now, a group of 14 leaders representing mental health advocacy organizations, philanthropy and professional guilds are calling on the Biden-Harris administration along with state and local leaders to take action.
1: COVID taught us anything in this last year, so much pain and suffering for so many, but that this is not an issue of just one in four of us or one in five of us, it is every single one of us. And our shared suffering that is leading to Half of the American population feeling mild to moderate anxiety and depression, increased people experiencing suicidal ideation and too many completing it, and people falling back in their addictions and struggling. The veil has been pulled back on the system failure and the racism that has been part of the system failure. And now it's much more clear what we need to do.
0: That is Tyler Norris. He is the chief executive of the California-based Wellbeing Trust, it's a healthcare nonprofit dedicated to improving mental, social, and spiritual health in the nation. And Norris is one of the coalition leaders calling on policymakers to take action now. The group has put forward a 17 page plan, and it's organized around seven pillars or principles. At the end of the day, what they want to see is full funding and improved access to whole healthcare for communities. And for Norris, that plan must include faith-based and spiritual community care. Unlike many of his peers in the coalition who are physicians, Norris holds a Master's of Divinity. He earned that MDiv from a Buddhist-affiliated institution in Boulder, Colorado, Naropa University. It was founded in 1974 by Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyang Trungpa. And Norris credits that educational experience with shaping his views on spiritual well-being and the challenges facing a divided nation.
1: I grew up in you know, rural Idaho, conservative. The values of their community in many ways are, are more traditional and, and religious in their way. And I've also spent a lot of my time in urban America. I've had the chance to do community-based work in over 500 cities uh, and towns across the United States, in every state. And uh, I am always struck that despite Political point of view or background or income or education level that many of us want the same thing for our lives, for our families, for our country. And uh, I love working locally because somehow uh, we work across the lines that often divide and find common ground. The local pragmatism is something I truly value. And so I think we need to bring that basic sense of our mutuality, our common faith, that, that the well being of our children is tied up and bound up in each other and our communities and our environment, and, uh, and recognize our shared identity and shared faith. As a Christian, I can say that the teachings of is they love one another. And with that, we can, of course, have spirited disagreement, but also find ways to work together. So I think our faith tradition, um, which in my faith tradition is one of radical inclusion, right the one where the, the prostitute and the tax collector, so-called outsider, are invited to the table that that to me is a is a is a north star for for how to begin with the dignity of all people regardless of how they might be seen what they do who they are any walk of life or lived experience they might have
0: you have a unique graduate degree for someone in the space of healthcare leadership you have a masters in divinity from a university that is affiliated or at least inspired by buddhist teachings what drew you to Naropa?
1: I went straight to work after college and didn't look back for a couple of years, raised a family. I kind of was straight ahead. And, and at a, at midlife, I, I wanted to, to grow again and, and refresh in a way. And I, I was always interested in the MDiv studies. And uh, so I found the one MDiv offering in the community that I lived in with my family. And it happened to be Buddhist, which as a Christian was very interesting to me. But I have to say, I loved the buddhist studies of the mind the awareness of how am i thinking how am i feeling what's real how do i meet the world as it is how do i show up with presence so in the chaplaincy training in that chaplaincy is an interfaith practice it was an extraordinary discipline within which to deepen my own tradition studies and train to be a chaplain and kind of engage the this this maybe a bit of a trinity of academics and work and service as a chaplain, sitting with people in prison, in jail, who were dying, struggling, and practice.
0: Talk to me a little bit about what the practice looks like now.
1: My practice? Well, that's a very good question. Immediately on earning my Master of Divinity, uh, I was engaged by Kaiser Permanente and moved to Oakland to lead a large part of that integrated health system, its total health, uh, around a whole people, spirit, mind, body, and how that large health system could bring all of its resources to bear. And so we worked to build healthy communities and then um, was, uh, was contacted by the Sisters of Providence and the Sisters of St. Joseph and the Providence Health System uh, to help them lead a new mental health philanthropy, what would become the first uh, nationwide philanthropy focused on mental health and addiction and creating, uh, not only saving 100,000 lives from deaths of despair, alcohol, opioids, and suicide but increasing well-being for all in America.
0: California in particular has been a leader in advancing and integrating mental health parity to be viewed not as a silo from physical health, but as part of it. But I also know that the translation of that policy into practice has been a struggle from the view of a lot of practitioners, community-based organizations, and frankly, Anyone who's listening who has a family member who has struggled with mental health challenges or illnesses is intimately aware of the disparity that exists and the struggle for getting that kind of support before. COVID-19, before this pandemic, before the national, um, and I almost call it a second reckoning with systemic racism, there were growing conversations about the link between trauma, mental health, criminal justice, absence of resources related to poverty. So many conversations in which mental health was starting to become part of the conversation And now we have this coalition encouraging the Biden administration to lead on. And I know you're a member of that. I want to ask you first, how significant is it that this coalition has come together?
1: It is very significant. And the agenda that is being uh, woven by organizations that have never really found truly common ground and aligned forces across the mental health field, the addiction field, the professional guilds, like the American psychiatric and psychological associations, the philanthropies in the field, the providers, uh, thousands of community health providers across the country and the National Council on Behavioral Health, groups like NAMI uh, and Mental Health America. Um, and states doing this work, coming together with a common vision, and specifically what we ought to be doing in the short term.
0: What actions, what top three actions are you looking for from this 17-page plan for this administration to move forward on?
1: I'll just tell you, I'm in my early 60s. I've been at this work a long time, and I've learned a few things over the years from working all across the nation. That, first of all, you need to start with equity. We need to understand that all means all, and that the health of black America, brown America, indigenous America, and our immigrant population, half of the babies born, and that all Americans have to understand that our fate is tied in the success of communities of color. So we have work to do to provide opportunity for communities of color so that we can all do well in our schools, in our workplace, in our community. So we must start with equity in all we are and do, rooted in those faith principles, if that's who you are. Secondly, we need to make sure that we go all in as communities. There are three main levers that we must all be pulling together. The first of these is to get the care right. Secondly, to pay for access to that care. And third is to create the conditions for mental health and well-being in the first place. So get the care right, let's start with that. Integrated, whole person care. If somebody is struggling with diabetes and depression, and we're trying to get someone to eat healthier, move more, cut their tobacco out, moderate the alcohol, but not their depression isn't being addressed, those behaviors are how someone's navigating the day. We have to have integrated care, no wrong door, spirit, mind, body, addressed together along with making assessment and referral to non-medical needs a standard of care, so integrated mental health care and physical care while addressing social needs. That's what it means to get the care right. That is an ethical responsibility of health systems to deliver that care, and we ought to be calling for it as residents. Secondly, we've got to increase the affordability of access to that care for all in America. California made a bold step forward. California SB 855 last autumn increased access the mental health and addiction care for 13 and a half million Californians. That could save tens of thousands of lives. Illinois, Georgia, or others are on that path of states practicing the gold standard of mental health parity. Very exciting to seeing what's happening across the country in mental health. We've got to get, get it paid for. And third is the conditions in our communities help shape human flourishing. If that mother and child to have a safe, healing, loving environment, food, security, all the basics we know, that child is less likely to have adverse child events. That child is more likely to have mental, emotional well-being and to be more resilient over time. That's what's needed here. Get the care right, get it paid for, and create communities that are gardens to grow our young people in for their well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically, and to build resilience Against Life's Slings and Arrows.
0: Talk about the role that you see individual faith playing in this and faith institutions. Where do both of those fit into this?
1: The first is purpose. There is a reason I am here. I feel a sense of meaning in my life. There is a way that I contribute. I have a sense of calling or vocation that there is meaning. Everyone needs that, that seed in every one of us, and every faith tradition reminds us of this. Secondly, and it's sort of a, a combination to purpose, if you will, of expression of purpose, is belonging, which is, I know where I'm safe, where my people are, where I'm loved, where I am welcome, both the ability to express myself through purpose, whatever that might be, the arts, music, dance, sciences, working, serving but also to know where we belong goes hand in glove. The third, awe and wonder, something greater than ourselves. It, we could see it in, in nature, or a sunset, or a, a beautiful conversation of significance, a beautiful meal together, or just our heart opening in shared grief that so many of us have had. And fourth, an opportunity to give back through service, to contribute <laughs> We all love to do something for others. And when those are intact, purpose, belonging, awe and wonder, and opportunities for service, more of us thrive. Faith community can remind us that we are all in this together. The faith community reminds us that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And that if we're having emotional addiction challenge, they are spiritual issues to a great extent, as well as brain health issues. And the compassion and love and kindness that is needed for people who are struggling is, God willing, what our faith communities ought to be best at, not as sources of divisiveness, but as safe places for people to be who they are and be safe. We can certainly find examples of of all denominations and faith traditions having voices and groups within them who seem to spark more divisiveness than reminding us that we are one human race. I think one of the most important things we can do as faith communities is pull back the shame and open the dialogue in real terms. This is a place for healing and truth-telling. The most important human need is to be heard. Many years ago, Archbishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa, one of the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to our little community. We took our kids to see him. And he said, the most important human need is to be heard. And we said, how did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission even begin to work after so much? He said, because we listened to each other. We created safe space. Faith communities of all stripes can do that. And that's an opportunity. Again, some with serious mentalists will always need their medications and safety. I am not just talking about that. I'm talking about all the rest of us with our mental health struggles, at home, at work, at school, wherever we may be. And the faith community has an extraordinary place to say you are welcome. All of you, the way you are, is welcome here.
0: That was Tyler Norris. The chief executive of the Wellbeing Trust, a national nonprofit based in Oakland, California. As Norris calls for faith leaders to partner in addressing the mental health crisis, one challenge remains stigma, especially in immigrant communities. Coming up after the break, we meet an Afghan American psychotherapist and psychology professor who is using her story and her voice to call Muslim faith leaders to help end the stigma attached to getting help. That's coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We just heard Tyler Norris of the Wellbeing Trust describe the mental health crisis in America and why a national coalition of leaders are pressing the Biden-Harris administration to support more funding and equity in mental health treatment. Now we turn to a related challenge, overcoming stigma and finding caregivers who understand the diverse faith cultures and communities in need. It was that very struggle, finding a counselor, that led Nahid Fatahi to leave the tech and business world where she was working to become a trained therapist.
2: So I I did like a 360 degree shift of a career, and the reason that I personally did that was because I was looking for a therapist who would be, quote unquote, not too Westernized or not too or enough Westernized, and then enough um, so also from you know a, a culture similar to mine where they would like understand the nuances and the details of what I'm sharing with them. I had a hard time finding that, um, and so I have always loved this field, and I thought maybe this is the time for me to make that career change.
0: Today, Fatahi is a practicing psychotherapist and an adjunct professor of psychology at Pacific Oaks College in Northern California. Earlier this month, she published an article in Psychology Today on the need to combat mental health stigma in the Muslim community. Her motivation to advocate for change is, in many ways, drawn from her own life story, overcoming trauma.
2: I was born into war i was born in um 1980 when afghanistan was going through an active war with the soviet unions right and then we became refugees and lived as refugees um you know um not in in dire conditions i mean we were lucky in that sense but still um displaced or away from home and that's when i was a child and then slowly until i became an adolescent and um, I was, you know, it was the tyranny of the Taliban when I was a teenager. So I lived <laughs> through that era until I left uh, that region altogether and migrated to Canada um, as a child bride, actually. And so to be saved from the tyranny of the Taliban, essentially, and um and obviously, when I look back at my experiences now, from the lens of, you know, a person who is in this field, I mean, um, although in compared to to many, um, I, I I was still lucky. I still struggled. I mean, it was it was not easy to live as a refugee. It was not easy to be displaced. at. You know, I I remember I was five and we left Afghanistan with my family in the back of donkeys and we migrated to Iran. We left a lavish, big, beautiful um, orchard and a house and family and people and relatives and everything that we knew into this semi-foreign land. Right. And I could only now imagine what that must have been on me and on my family at that time. So when I was as a teenager living in Canada, I was going through a deep depression and there was no help. I mean, mental health wasn't a thing. It was like, what is, you know, some of the things that I remember I heard at that time from family members is like, what is wrong with you? You should be happy. You have everything. Mm -hmm. And so, but I wasn't happy and I didn't feel like I have everything and I wanted to thrive and I wanted to live life, but it's just something was almost dead inside of me. Now that I look back at it again, I, I had a lot of resiliency. I was extremely resilient. So the obstacle that I faced throughout life did not really, um, for the lack of a better word, did not really break my back. You know, credit my parents um, for my upbringing. I I grew up in a very loving family, especially my relationship with my father was just, um, he was very uh, encouraging and loving throughout my life. Sometimes when I think back to my own experiences and I know that I came out of it okay, um, I kind of want to know, like, what happened? Why did I make it Mm. this far? And I could only maybe credit that relationship that my father had with me, you know, that father-daughter relationship that really impacted, I I guess, my resilience.
0: I can hear that you have done a lot of work reflecting and thinking about those chapters in your life. For listeners who may have just heard you say that you were a child bride, that you were born into a state of war, that you were internally displaced and then became a refugee and then found your way to Canada as a child bride, and then to hear that you had a close relationship with your father, for, can you fill in the blanks for a listener who may be saying, am I don't get it? how does a parent who sends their daughter off remain or retain that kind of relationship?
2: I think, yeah, I think in 1994, when my parents decided to,
0: you know, for me to
2: get married in order their, their main um, purpose was to save my life and to give me a better life. And education was on the top of their list. They, you know, families, um, A lot of uh, (laughs) Middle Eastern and Muslim families, they want their children to become doctors and engineers. (laughs) My parents were not different from any of those other people. Um, They always wished for me to actually become a doctor. Mm. And so it was impossible um, to become a doctor um, with the Taliban in power and with what they did to girls and, and women. And so my parents made essentially that decision. Um, I'm a parent right now and I have a teenage daughter and knowing how loving my my um, parents were, I could only imagine that their choice wasn't really a choice, hoping that my life would be better than what they were able to offer me under the tyranny of the Taliban. Prior to that, um, I you know I lived in the kind of family that we read poetry after you know almost every, um, during every afternoon tea and snacks. And um, mm. my father gifted me my first poetry book when I was um, 11, 12, you know, and God bless his soul. I, I lost him 18 years ago. Oh, and um, to this day, uh, you know, my father has a big role in my, in my writings and my poetry mm. in the way that I think about life and about humanity.
0: I want to talk for a moment about the fact that, you know, here you are um, wanting to challenge stigma. Some of the fears, some of the stigma, some of the shame, the sense of bringing Mm -hmm. dishonor on the family. You know, those are very real cultural struggles that people can be facing, particularly young people. I think um,
2: breaking the stigma in the Muslim community really starts from our homes, from ourselves, right? If we are struggling with depression, with anxiety, with mental health illnesses, it's okay to talk about it. There is nothing to be ashamed of, right? And then it's okay to talk within the family context about it. For parents to really pay attention to their children, to their adolescents, and kind of really observe their behaviors. And if they see a change to talk with their kids, right, and to seek help. And lastly, I think the mental health professionals in the Muslim community should really come together. Um, Another important factor is that, you know, we, a person is not, you know, we, we cannot refer to people as their diagnosis. And mental health is not a person's identity. It's an issue that they're struggling with. Um, when we refer to a person who has cancer, we literally say this person has cancer. We don't call them cancerous, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when a person is dealing, let's say, with depression, which is the most common mental health um, issue, we call them depressed, right? The person is not depressed, they're struggling with depression, and they are experiencing some symptoms of depression, right? Or a person is not schizophrenic, they have schizophrenia. So it's important for us to really also be very cautious and careful with how we speak with our choices of words and how we define and refer to people, because that's not a part of their identity. It's something that they're battling with, My hope is that with enough education and with enough discussion about this topic, it will be, you know, just like people talk about the fact that they have blood pressure with diabetes. All the time, right? I'm taking such and such for my blood pressure. I'm taking such
0: and such medication for my diabetes. Well, you're talking about normalizing. You're talking about normalizing it. So we're talking about exactly. medications, <laughs> right? Like, like uh, you, Beautifully
2: you... and shortly
0: said, <laughs> yes, <laughs> normalizing. I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I think it's so powerful. And I'm even thinking about myself, my own use of words and language and wondering how I use shorthand. And that's absolutely right. A person is not their diagnoses. They are not just an Mm -hmm. illness. You wrote for Psychology Today, you wrote an article that was uh, posted earlier in the week about the need for confronting the silence that you're describing that many are suffering in. But you focus specifically on the stigma that is associated with mental health in the Muslim Mm -hmm. American community. I I wanted to ask you if you could speak to why you wrote that article and why now.
2: One of the reasons that I chose to write this article this last week was because the ban was lifted a week ago. And of course, like any um, administrative work (laughs) that the government deals with, it will take a while until it takes effect completely, right? Mm. Um, But the struggle that the Muslim community have gone through because of that ban is so vast and so great. And I think we are to see more of the impact that it has had on them in in the months and years to come. Families were separated from each other, not on the borders like they did with the um, recent um, uh, migration or refugee crisis at the borders of the US and Mexico, But more of, you know, families were stuck in in Syria, in Iran, in Iraq, and family members here could not travel back for the fear of not being able to return
0: or family members couldn't come to the U.S. Am I hearing you correctly? Are you saying that now that the ban has been rescinded for four years, you have a community that's been holding its breath in a way, and now you're going to see or feel the trauma of it as we move forward. Is, is the timing of it because now that the ban has lifted emotionally, the community that was impacted is going to begin to process it? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, imagine
2: being discriminated against um, because of your faith. And um, I I strongly believe that we will continue to see um, the impact of it on their mental health, on their emotional health in the upcoming months and years to come. Um, It's the same right now, the children that were separated from their parents, from the majority Latino countries, um, they too, in the upcoming years, they will be greatly impacted their mental and emotional health by that separation.
0: The conversation around mental health has evolved so much in the last 25 years, and yet still there is stigma. Stigma continues to linger, especially in some communities where association and the idea of mental health is seen as spiritual weakness. You referenced that researchers explain that some religious leaders in the Muslim community, and this is both in the United States and abroad, believe that they themselves are Better placed than the actual uh, medically trained clinicians to begin the process of helping uh, individuals with distress and facilitating Mm -hmm. kind of healing. And I'm curious, have you seen that firsthand? Why did you feel it was important to incorporate that as one of the challenges, particularly in the Muslim community?
2: First and foremost, the Muslim community we have a uh, collectivism approach to how we perceive ourselves and each other. And so the Muslim community is a person, they don't just live for themselves, they also live for their family, they also live for their community. And stigma is more so prominent in the Muslim community because if, let's say, a person is struggling with a mental health illness, then it as if their entire family and generation are struggling with a mental health illness, meaning it's not just about them. It's about their upbringing. It's about the family. It's about the community. And so the community as a whole is more silence and then they keep it within the family, right? For the fear of that stigma and that shame that comes with it, especially for those who are practicing Muslims, mosques are a big part of their lives. And in those mosques, the imams um, or the leaders of those mosques, they play a key role in these people's lives, right? And so if um, if a religious leader tells a person that what you're going through is just weakness and your faith in God or in Allah has decreased and therefore you're struggling with this and you just need to pray more and things will fall into place. I mean, imagine the impact that that can have on a person who is clinically depressed, a person that may very, very well need not just psychotherapy, but medication to um, treat the illness itself. And so I think it's important to bring that aspect into, like for me, it was important to bring it into the article because at the end of the article, what I'm trying to say is for the Muslim community to work together in order to decrease this stigma. And because religious leaders play a big role in the Muslim community, if they get involved correctly, meaning if they get the education and knowledge on when to refer and how to deal with a person who is battling a mental health illness, that they may play a big role in de-stigmatizing mental health illnesses and also referring people to the right resources. The other part is that believing in supernatural forces, such as the evil eye, such as these, the um, spirit or jinn possessions are very big. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, a lot of the Ibrahimic <laughs> religions, but especially in Islam, Jinn is obviously... Be, it's it's a part of the religion.
0: Well, and for listeners, let's just pause here for a second. You know I'm Muslim, my family's from Pakistan. I'm very familiar with jinn, but I know many listeners may not be. And jinn, are, jinn would be described mm-hmm. as like another life force. They're not human, but they can interact with humans. And the mm-hmm. stories of the jinn actually appear in the Quran. So it's not secondary text. It's actually part of the sacred text. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I went to Pakistan, trying to get my own family history and trying to learn about my grandmother and, um, an uncle who was much, much older at the time. You know, he's since passed. I remember translating what he was saying. He was just like, well, she, you know, God bless her soul. She was possessed by the djinn for so many years. Mm-hmm. I I was trying to wrap my head around what they were saying. And it, it wasn't until I got a little older that I understood the way in which they treated her was not as being physically ill or having a brain chemistry imbalance, but Mm -hmm. is having a defect of the soul Mm -hmm. and a weakness that allowed herself to become possessed in a way. My conversation with Afghan American psychotherapist and mental health advocate Nahid Fatahi continues. How Mm -hmm how is it that patients or individuals who are struggling with these things, how do they find resources when, if they're encountering healthcare professionals who are not familiar with the culture, I wonder how that impacts someone's willingness to open up and to share.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it would make it hard for a person to, like, let's say if, a person is battling with psychosis, right? And they, their belief is that they they have been possessed by jinns. As a person who knows that aspect of it culturally, um, I can empathize and I can reflect with a person talking about that they believe that they may have been possessed by jinn. If you know, in reality, they may. Experiencing psychosis, for Mm. example, if a person is not familiar or culturally competent in that area, that they may just conclude that that person's belief is also a part of their psychosis. When in that aspect, it's not a part of their psychosis; Mm. it's a part of the culture. And and a person who is not from that culture may have a hard time understanding that, and therefore would rule it out as another sign of psychosis. If that makes sense
0: we've talked a lot about the Muslim community and the struggles that you are hoping to shine some light on with your stories and with your observations. I'm wondering for your personal practice, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I mean, how, how important or how much of a role do faith and spirituality play in your own coping as you talk about your own resilience and the trauma of being a helper. I mean, when you're in the healing arts, Mm -hmm. you also, I imagine Find yourself confronting and having to process all those things that go along with that role that you play as a listener. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, I am a big believer in um, practicing mindfulness and meditation. I'm a practicing Muslim in my own way. For example, I pray and I meditate, but my prayers are not necessarily. A conventional way. And usually when I pray and when I meditate, I like to pray and meditate in Farsi more than any other, you know, more than English or Arabic. Mm. Right? So that for me is extremely helpful, you know, practicing mindfulness, practicing meditation throughout the day, a couple of times a day for me are extremely important. I believe in God. I believe in Allah. I believe in that higher power. And I think those beliefs give me a lot of hope um, for, you know, a better tomorrow for the world and for humanity. I think the rule of religion can be the act of praying, right? Our own, um, the, the Muslim prayers, the way a person praise in a very traditional way from the voodoo when they you know prepare to wash their face and body parts for you know in preparation to go and pray to the praying if it's done correctly it's a beautiful beautiful form of meditation mm. that can go a long way with easing a person's stress with helping them with their anxiety and with depression but what want to bring into that is to pray mindfully. And so from that perspective, I think religion can have a really positive or uh, role in people's mental health and their wellness, if I want to say, if they do it mindfully. I believe that God, Allah, is so great, so powerful that Allah, God, does not need our prayers per se, that we pray for ourselves right that he's not there net picking on like who prayed five times. <laughs> and or... what
0: direction your fingers are in and toes. In. My, what, my, exactly. Yeah, my mom used to say something. She is very devout. She doesn't ever miss a prayer. But when she's praying it, she's incredibly present. And I remember her teaching us when we were little and her whole thing was like, you don't listen to the phone you don't listen to any you know and when I went to my first yoga class I'm like oh this reminds me of like all the instructions that my my mom gave me where it was like stand on your mat feel your breath feel your body take a full breath in focus set an intention and it wasn't um just moving through the motions her whole message to us as little kids was like this is your personal private line to kind of, you know, like have this conversation. It's uh, your yeah. space. And I you know, it's interesting Absolutely. because I I find what you're describing is very devout to me. I mean, that's my interpretation of like that level of engagement, that level of um, connection. When you talk about religiosity, I've spoken with a couple of folks and I've read research on the benefits of believing in something transcendent, the benefits of mm-hmm. engaging in practices or rituals that allow you to cope and uh, confront some of the traumas that you're feeling. And I would never thought about the... Ablution, but now you're reminding me, my mom used to say that too that you're washing, you're not literally just washing your hands so they're clean. You want your hands to be clean. But when you're mm-hmm. doing that ablution, when you put on the clean clothes, when you wash your face, it is also metaphorical that you are letting go of this like world. You're letting mm-hmm. go of everything that you were dealing with today and everything you've got to deal with. And you're just going to come to the mat with a clean heart. When I discovered yoga, you know, in my late 20s, I was like, whoa, this is so much like the praying that we used to do. The yoga mat reminds me of the because I practice yoga as well.
2: The yoga mat reminds me of the praying and yeah. <laughs> you know, some of the movements are also very similar. Oh, yeah. And the, yeah. that's why, you know, the, for those folks who are practicing Muslim or practicing in whatever religion that they're practicing, I invite them to practice their religion much more mindfully. It will go a long way with helping with decreasing stress, anxiety, and depression, and all of those.
0: I want to ask you one last question. You've explained what's drawn you to this work, and also you've shared some of the traumas that you experienced, and those were not insignificant. You know, a lot of young people are facing, and not just young people of all ages, are facing uncertainty. They're facing food insecurity, um, threat Mm -hmm. of becoming unhoused, you know, losing their homes. And that level of kind of basic needs, feeling threatened, have people afraid. And when we're afraid, Mm -hmm. a different part of our brain kind of fuels us. It fuels our attention. Mm -hmm. It fuels our reactions. What Mm -hmm. are some of the resources that you feel like people should be availing themselves of, so, so trauma, hardships of life are a part of
2: life. So when I'm working with a person who is going through a rough time, right, some of uh, life's issues such as poverty, such as certain illnesses, such as certain traumas are, you know, they are extremely hard to deal with. But even with those very, very hard situations, it really goes back to a person's perception, how they perceive themselves within the context of that trauma, within the context of that hardship or that life stressors that they're going through. And what I mean by that is when we human beings they lose hope and they lose faith when they feel helpless and when they feel out of control and what i tell people is that there is always and always there are some things in life that we can control right and to in those times when we cannot control the what is happening outside of us is to really control our perceptions and our way of thinking and what and focus on what is in our control within any given day the other part of this is that this whole idea of happiness this constant happiness is almost sold to us as you know um to to this especially in today's society um that you know we must be and we should be happy at all times and That is not correct. That is very untrue. And buying into that idea can make people extremely miserable. In reality, life is this journey of ups and downs. A lot of downs, in fact, right? And some ups. And it's kind of knowing that the downs will not last forever and so as the ups will not last forever. And so continuously changing our perception about life and about happiness and about pain and about what is in our control and how we can control um, our circle, right? I think would make um, a big difference into, you know, um, I guess, at least with the people that I work with, it, it helps them. And of course, there is a lot of this is a long intervention that I tried to fit in within the five minutes that I had here.
0: (laughs) Uh, But it reminding me of my favorite book that I discovered when I was, I think, 17. um, The Road Less Traveled, the absolute first page of that book, which I repeat to my kids all the time and to anyone who'll listen. Life is difficult. And when you recognize that, it gets easier. And there's <laughs> Yes. There you go. <laughs> there is something that has there's something for me like that resonates so much so deeply. But I'm mindful that, you know, life can is more difficult for some than others. And the sometimes we need help, and that right now there are many finding themselves self medicating and turning to to behaviors that can actually hurt and harm them. And and, and, and the
2: it. most yeah and the most hurtful behavior is obviously um, addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Which is another big struggle that the society as a whole is going through. Correct for the community as a whole to continuously talk about it, and if there are resources available within the community that people, um, those folks who are struggling can go to and can get the help that they need. Yeah.
0: Any last points or last thoughts that you want to share before we sign off?
2: I'm just inviting people to talk about their mental health
0: illnesses,
2: to seek help and just know that each and every one of you make this world a more beautiful place and you matter and your existence matters.
0: Mahid Fatahi is an associate marriage and family therapist and an associate professional clinical counselor. She is also an adjunct professor of psychology at Pacific Oaks College. Links to her articles can be found in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our producers, Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. And to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion of this week's episode, please visit interfaithradio.org to stream the show in its entirety. To learn more about us, sign up for our Zoom book club taking place on February 25th, or to send us feedback, just visit interfaithradio.org. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, you stay well, and you stay connected. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. See you next week.